X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon, and it is good to be with you. It is Monday, August 24th, a very good day to subscribe to The Local and to refer to a friend. Today, back in the day, in the year 79 AD, way back in the day, Mount Vesuvius erupted in southern Italy, burying Roman cities Pompeii and Herculaneum. 15,000 people died. The ancient cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum thrived near the base of Mount Vesuvius in the Bay of Naples. In the time of the early Roman Empire, 20,000 people lived there. In Pompeii, Herculaneum was a city of 5,000 and a favorite summer destination for rich Romans. It was named after the mythic hero Hercules and housed villas and Roman baths. Gambling artifacts were found in Herculaneum and a brothel was unearthed in Pompeii, which have lent to their historical reputation as decadent cities. Mount Vesuvius exploded at noon, propelled a 10-mile mushroom cloud of ash and pumice into the atmosphere. Volcanic ash and pumice stones up to three inches in diameter showered Pompeii for half a day, 12 hours, forcing the city's occupants fleeing in terror. Some 2,000 people stayed in Pompeii, hiding in cellars or stone structures, hoping to wade out the eruption. A westerly wind protected Herculaneum from the initial stage, but then a giant cloud of hot ash and gas surged down the western flank of Vesuvius, engulfing the city and burning or asphyxiating all who remained. This was followed by a flood of volcanic mud and rock which buried the city. The people who remained in Pompeii were killed in the morning of August 25th when a cloud of toxic gas poured into the city, suffocating all who remained. A flow of rock and ash followed, collapsing roofs and walls and burying the dead. Happy August 24th, everybody. And perhaps continuing the theme, today, back in the day, August 24th, 1814, British forces captured Washington, D.C. and burned the White House, then called the Presidential Mansion. They also burned the Capitol Building and multiple government and military buildings. And that burning of Washington today, back in the day, marks the only time since the American Revolutionary War that a foreign power has captured and occupied the United States Capitol. President James Madison, a group of military leaders, and his government fled to Brookville, a small town in Montgomery County, Maryland, known today as the United States Capitol for a day. Today, we will have your Quick 6 News headlines. Kate Kay joins with more from Senator Jeff Merkley on federal biometrics legislation and an interview with Olivia Pace on Portland State's recent decision to disarm campus police. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Far-right protesters clashed with Black Lives Matter protesters this weekend. Far-right groups, including the Proud Boys, gathered for an event at Terry Shrunk Plaza noon on Saturday. At the same time, an event called the Mother of All Black and Blue Rallies was planned at the Justice Center. Lefty and anti-fascist groups showed up to both events to counter-protest. Hundreds gathered in the plaza, blocking Southwest 3rd Avenue between Madison and Salmon Streets. Throughout the afternoon, assailants were seen using weapons, throwing objects at one another. One attendee, Tusitala Tosi, had been barred from participating in public demonstrations for two years in 2018 for instigating violence, and an arrest warrant is still active for Tuisi for parole violations. Meanwhile, police looked on. In previous days, of course, protests by Black Lives Matter protesters had been deemed a riot. In this clash, including the Proud Boys and other alt-right groups, the police bureau merely tweeted, I am quoting, PPB, that's Portland Police Bureau, asks all groups to remain peaceful and self-monitor for criminal behavior. Everyone has the right to engage in the expression of First Amendment rights. By 1.30 p.m., no officers were seen in the area of the protests. 
Far-right protesters left around 2 p.m., faced off with more counter-protesters inside a parking garage. After they left, about 200 Black Lives Matter protesters remained, chanting in the park. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, 231 new cases on Sunday, zero new deaths. We're up to just about 25,000 cases and 417 recorded deaths in Oregon. And Saturday saw the passing of an otherwise healthy 37-year-old woman who died five days after being diagnosed with COVID-19. And again, this was someone with no pre-existing conditions. Reporting by The Oregonian showing that governors, including Kate Brown, have taken advice from businesses to decide about whether to reopen. Thousands of emails obtained through open records laws show that businesses have advised governors nationwide on reopening, often against the recommendations of health officials. Emails sent to Governor Brown here in Oregon by business groups in May requested the governor open up indoor businesses and not require masks. As the summer saw cases increase, Governor Brown did mandate masks statewide. In Washington state, dog walkers and car wash owners were influential in creating rules surrounding their businesses. In other states, like South Carolina, plans written by health officials were ignored completely in favor of plans written by business interests. In that state, restaurants reopened a week earlier than recommended by health officials at double the capacity, that plan again created by restaurant industry leaders. Loretta Smith has requested an audit of the August 11th special election after her narrow defeat. Just this last Thursday, Smith requested an audit of the election. She lost to Dan Ryan. The results of the election were announced as Dan Ryan winning. Loretta Smith's team pointed to several discrepancies in the data, including a vote cast by a deceased person. The other major irregularity is the 14,000 votes cast by people who have not voted in the past five years. More than 11,000 of those voters were apparently born on January 1st. Ryan won the election by about 5,300 votes, 51 to 48 percent. One explanation for the birth date irregularity is that since 2018, months and days of birth are redacted from voter information lists. So automated software often fills in the birth dates to January 1st. According to Multnomah County Election Division Director Tim Scott, an initial investigation was conducted. The vote sent in by a deceased person was not counted, according to Scott. Smith's campaign has not commented on whether they found these explanations satisfying and are demanding an in-person review of 11,000 ballots before the September 9th certification of the vote. Fires are sweeping through Oregon after lightning storms. While we watch our California neighbors to the south suffering a horror show, as of Saturday, eastern and central Oregon are experiencing 14 active wildfires 100 acres or larger. Last week, lightning struck over 3,000 times east of the Cascades, creating new fires and reigniting smoldering fires. Evacuation orders are in the get-set level around the Green Ridge Fire Area, located 12 miles northeast of Sisters. Smoke coming from fires in California actually helped limit fire activity in Oregon because it interrupted the oxygen, but it made it more difficult for helicopters to fight the fires. Meanwhile, incarcerated firefighters are earning $9.80 a day. State prison inmates are among those fighting the many wildfires. Governor Kate Brown has declared a state of emergency. And 345 firefighters are coming from eight different state prisons. Department of Forestry has been using incarcerated firefighters since 1951. Inmates are compensated through money and points. The maximum allowed to be made is $9.80 a day. In 1994, Oregon voters passed Ballot Measure 17. That requires inmates to have full-time jobs while incarcerated. It does not have any requirements for the compensation of the work. Oregon Department of Corrections has clarified that it is not deploying firefighters from prisons with active COVID cases. Some good news. It is huckleberry season, except... They're not actually huckleberries. What we call huckleberries are actually just a species of a native blueberry. 
The Pacific Northwest has at least seven different species of wild blueberries. True huckleberries are found in eastern North America and have large seeds. The berries we have have been harvested by Northwest tribes for thousands of years as food and medicine. These native blueberries thrive in the acidic soil at high elevations. Berry habitats were maintained through controlled burns to clear overgrowth. The season is short, not lasting longer than September. Berries can be expensive to buy and difficult to forage for. And these special species of native blueberry that we call huckleberries can be found in hikes along Mount Hood, Mount Rainier, and Mount St. Helens. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley has co-sponsored three bills this year that would restrict use of controversial biometric technologies. Biometrics include facial recognition, the type of tech that soon could be banned here in Portland. Reporter Kate Kay spoke with Merkley for the latest episode of the Band in PDX podcast. Up next, you'll hear some of what he had to say. You can check out the full episode of the Band in PDX podcast featuring Senator Jeff Merkley on Apple, Spotify, or xraypod.com. I am arguing that that does not make for a better America, and we better have a very serious extensive conversation because this technology is so cheap and so easily spread, we're going to blink twice and it's going to be everywhere. Jeff Merkley believes that governments from the city to the state to the national level should stop the use of biometric technologies. The U.S. Senator from Oregon earlier this month added yet another bill to a growing list of legislation he's co-sponsored. His third bill this year that would restrict use of controversial biometrics. Merkley's list of reasons for wanting to limit biometric technologies is even longer. Among them, he cites invasive data privacy infringements, racial discrimination, and the threat of a surveillance state. So what are biometrics? Well, the bio part is there for a reason. These are technologies that are designed to collect and use data reflecting human biology. So, yes, facial recognition is a biometric technology. It gathers and uses facial data. Other biometrics scan data from the iris or retina of the eye, from our voice, our veins, our palms and fingerprints, the gait of our walk, our DNA. Some biometric tech can be used to identify people. Other types might be used to measure things like body temperature or the composition of our sweat. So I spoke with Senator Merkley on July 31st, a few days before he introduced his new National Biometric Information Privacy Act of 2020. It was co-sponsored by Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. So I wanted to get Senator Merkley's thoughts on Portland's proposed facial recognition ban. Here's what he said. I think it's really important that places enact a, a complete pause on the use uh, because the issues have not been thought through. Uh, city councils, county commissions, state legislatures, and certainly not the U.S. Congress have not uh, methodically gone through the implications. And we see lots of troubling issues involved here. You have issues of racial discrimination. You have uh, different policies being enacted in different areas by companies uh, based on uh, the uh, wealth of the community that they're in or the racial construction of the, uh, the, the community. You have issues of the surveillance state. You have issues of data being collected and being sold. 
of data being perhaps shared uh, in large databases that foreign entities can gain access to. There's a tremendous number of issues associated with this that have to be carefully thought through, and I'm all for uh, putting a full pause and, and having a very substantive exploration before we end up in a place that we don't want to be. I'm reporter Kate Kay. Hear from my talk with Senator Merkley in the latest episode of Band in PDX. Check out Band in PDX, that's B-A-N-N-E-D in PDX on Apple, Spotify, or xraypod.com. Next up, we have an interview with one of the lead organizers of Disarm PSU, Olivia Pace. Olivia gives us insight into the long road of organizing that moved the university administration to disarm campus police. Good morning, Olivia. Morning. Hi. How are you doing this morning? I'm, yeah, I'm doing well. Doing great. Good. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. So during your time at Portland State, you helped start and run the hashtag disarm PSU campaign from 2015 to 2019. You've been working on this for a while. And you've continued to fight up until the day that they made the announcement about finally disarming. The moment that you found out about Portland State disarming police officers, where were you? What were your thoughts? Where was I? I was in bed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm on a quarantine sleep schedule. So I was kind of laying in bed. Not really doing much. Mm-hmm. And I got a message with an article, and I had heard that it, it, it might happen, but I really, really didn't believe it, and I was very skeptical. And I opened it and I screamed, honestly. Um, yeah, and my thoughts were just really overwhelmed um, with, with excitement, really. Um, it's important to emphasize that there's still so much work to be done, and this does not equal like uh, a, a safe campus for for black and brown people. Like this is not uh, a decision that just makes sweeping and like complete changes for marginalized people and for the people that we fought for in this campaign. But it's a big step forward, and more like I think more than anything, it shows the power of organizing, the power of direct action, the power of student organizing, um, and that it's important to, to keep pushing on these campaigns, even when it seems like the power structures you're pushing up against aren't going to move. And um, it is like the only semblance of justice for Jason Washington, mm. um, who was killed in 2018 by PSU police. Um, the only semblance of justice for him that has been had. Um, so it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. I was I was very excited. I'm still pretty excited. <laughs> um, yeah. So you mentioned Jason Washington. He was killed by Portland State Police in 2018. A mm-hmm. Navy veteran trying to break up a fight. He was killed um, by 17 shots um, that hit him nine times. How did the atmosphere at Portland State change after that happened? I think there was just a really overwhelming, immediate kind of um, swelling of this historical memory because this this campaign has been going on for so long at Portland State. Like you said, I've been involved since 2015, and that was the year that the police force was created, but there have been students 
who are still peripherally kind of involved to this day as alumni and other other relationships to the university. Students and faculty and staff who have been involved since 2013, um, when the university administration first um, announced that they were looking into pretty seriously the creation of a police force. Um, and so since then, students were fighting, and the university just really never took it seriously. Every time we had an action, a rally, no matter how big it was, no matter how big pressure was building, no matter how much media coverage we got, the university always insisted that they were, that they just had absolutely no interest at all in looking into the issue. And so eventually the campaign lost a little bit of momentum. And in 2017 to kind of early 2018, um, it wasn't, it, it wasn't extremely active on campus. And then when Jason Washington was murdered um, by PSC police, um, it, it, it literally restarted action overnight. Um, mm. There was just a really overwhelming sense of, of pain, of anger um, on, on the campus amongst the people who had, amongst all, the so many people who had been a part of this, this battle since 2013 at that point. And I had people for days and days and days just kind of very exasperated coming up to me and saying, we told them, you told them, we told them this would happen. I can't believe this is happening. Um, and so it, it, it brought back that spirit and the intensity of the campaign literally overnight. Um, we had a rally for Jason Washington two days later and everything just kicked up again. Um, this time feeling like the stakes were even higher than they were before and they 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 felt very high before so along along the years of this campaign who were you primarily negotiating with was it with the president's office or other entities at portland state um definitely the president's office but the main target um especially early on of actions and of anger and the people that we were trying to pressure um, a lot of the time we're primarily on the, the PSU Board of Trustees, um, who are the unelected governing body of the university. They're a 15-person body made up of um, mostly people who represent various business interests across the city and the state, um, most of which do not really have staunchly educational backgrounds and have very loose kind of business-related ties to PSU. At any given time, there's one student, one faculty, and one staff representative or representative um, on the body. And again, these people are not elected. Um, they're appointed through a process by the state um, and the governor, and the Senate and the governor. Um, so, and they were the ones who voted in favor of this. Um, they didn't even really exist mm-hmm. at all when President Ben Vavell, former president of PSU, he stepped down in 2000 and 16 or 17. Um, they didn't exist at all when he first kind of put this out as a possibility, the creation of the PSU police force. And then the Board of Trustees model kind of came into play across universities in Oregon. Um, a law passed in a Bill 270 that empowered these bodies to create, PSU, to create um, police forces on campus. And through that, um, and it just got pushed through very quickly, and it was very clear this was always going to be the plan that there was never going to be 
really student faculty and staff input taken into account on whether or not there would be a police force. And so we, we targeted a lot of our energy towards the Board of Trustees because to us, they seem to be um, one of the key powers, um, the, the, the power that was responsible for creating this force, and, one, and so one of the key powers that would be um, responsible for reversing it. But at the end of the day, any number of people could have made this decision. Mm. Um, the Board of Trustees, the President, the Chief of Police, and it, it ended up, the final straw ended up being um, through a combination of current President Percy and um, current Chief of Police, Willie Halliburton. Um, but of course, they wouldn't have made this decision had there not been this intense pressure mm. um, on the university for seven years through rallies, through occupying buildings, through shutting down Board of Trustees meetings. Mm. Um, without that, they never would have made this decision. They were the ones who eventually made the final call. Okay. And do you have any sense of what the tipping point was? As you just laid out, it's been a long road and lots of different actions, a lot of different pressure points. And then you get you get an email with an article that says that they've they've changed their yeah. minds and they're going to disarm police. Any sense of what that tipping point was? Yeah, I I mean I think it just really highlights kind of the nature of of movements like this, um, mm. which is that you know. As organizers, we we kind of take on responsibility to to do what we can to change to change conditions that we are not satisfied with that we see as oppressive. Um, but sometimes there's just kind of overwhelming political factors that are so much stronger than organizations or people. And right now, I mean, we're in this unprecedented uprising against racial injustice in our country with the 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 protests and uprisings in cities across the country, obviously Portland being one of the focal points of that, um, with everything that was happening a few weeks ago with the feds um, and everything in a reaction to the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Elijah McLean and so many others. Mm -hmm. um, and we really saw Portland State trying to navigate that. Portland State... Um, really prides itself on being this university in the center of the city of a liberal city and they always tout themselves as being very innovative as uh, being so welcoming and try and being so diverse and trying to really kind of position themselves as being pro-social justice mm. and I think it was becoming very clear that they could not use that to their advantage reputationally so long as they continue to be in this really disgusting standoff with student staff and faculty over the, the armed campus police um, and having taken absolutely zero, zero, zero accountability for the death of Jason Washington. I mean, it's a small thing, but in the last few weeks before this, they posted multiple things regarding Black Lives Matter, um, saying that yeah, just saying Black Lives Matter, saying that they heard students and that they were committed to whatever to justice and blah blah blah. And every single time on every single post, the comments would just be flooded with all kinds of people saying, "This is not legitimate. And how can you possibly say this when you have this death on your hands?" 
and when you won't disarm PSU and you keep ignoring students after all of these years. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it really became a question of, of it being better for their reputation whether than worse to disarm. And given our current situation, also economically, possibly a better financial situation. Um, it just became easier for them to do it um, than to not do it. And I think that was the tipping point. Mm. But um, obviously the, the, the thing that put them in the position in the first place to even consider it that had people even caring was all of the action over the last seven years. And, that, and that's kind of back to what I was saying about the nature of, of this kind of organizing, which is frustrating, but also kind of empowering, where it, it's a, you know, sometimes you'll do work for years and you'll organize huge actions and you'll put in all this work and it'll seem like nobody cares and it's, you can't do anything to kind of make the incentive big enough for these power structures mm-hmm. to actually bend you. But when the, when the moment comes, like when a when a political moment comes like this, um, and they do, when people are on the whole ready to fight back, um, you'll be happy that you did the work because mm-hmm. you'll be ready to to make that final push. Um, and so I think this this political moment was the final push, but all the organizing along the way is what even made it possible in the first place. Mm. What's your advice for listeners who see something that isn't right, that they're frustrated by, that they're angry about, and they want to do something? What's your advice? I think kind of going back to what I said before about about the work mattering in the end, even mm. though it even though it can feel thankless. Um, I think just don't don't be afraid to figure like to start strategizing about how to fight back even if it feels like nobody else cares if there's something going on that you you care about that you think can be different um talk to people in your community about it ask people about it be curious about it there's a huge chance that other people in your community um also care and also feel disempowered and also feel like they don't have the power to change anything um in organizing the beginning, the beginning of organizing can just be you having a group chat with people, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your peers mm-hmm. at school, um, just talking about your frustrations and strategizing about how those things might change. Um, the beginning can just be putting up a flyer. Obviously, right now, this is complicated given social distancing, but putting up a flyer in your neighborhood advertising that... Um, yeah, you want to have a discussion about issues like this. Um, don't be afraid to look into organizations in your community and, and step in. I feel like people are often very intimidated by going into organizing spaces, but the reality is that there's just a, a very intense need for more people to not just be out in the streets protesting, but to join um, powerful political organizations um, like Black Lives Matter, like Care Not Cops, like don't shoot Portland, like all of these organizations that um, are very powerful right now and also are underlined by extremely um, exhausted, hardworking organizers who perpetually don't have enough support. Um, so I would just say, don't, don't ever think you don't know enough. Don't ever think that you're too small. Don't ever think that it doesn't matter. Um, even that small step of just talking to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your, to other people going to school with you, um, can 
be the start of something very, very important. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that, Olivia. Yeah, you are a wonderful example of how your voice matters, how time matters, how contribution matters. Congratulations on this on this huge win with regard to Disarm PSU. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I hope we can talk again soon. Yes, for sure. I was at Olivia Pace. She worked tirelessly on the Disarm PSU campaign, and after seven years of fighting and organizing, the Student Union and others have managed to achieve their goal of bringing change to the Portland State campus. Thanks to Kate, Olivia, and Senator Merkley for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.